Hi, I'm Steve Shu. I'm Corey Washington. Welcome to Manifold. Apologies for the audio in today's episode. Corey and I are locked down in our homes because of the coronavirus. We're not in our usual studio, and so the audio may not be up to uh, its usual standards. But I hope you enjoy the episode. Our guest today is Michael Kaufman, co-founder and CEO of Caria Farm Therapeutics, which develops cancer drugs for the treatment of a variety of cancers and has an approved drug, Expovio, for resistant myeloma. The company is testing low doses of Expovio in patients with severe COVID-19. Prior to Caria Farm, Michael was the chief medical officer of Onyx Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, which acquired Proteolix Incorporated, relayed the development of Carfilzomid, a novel proteasome inhibitor. In 2002, he became CEO of Predix Pharmaceuticals, which was acquired by Epix Pharmaceuticals in 2006. Michael led the combined company until 2008, when it went out of business after a failed phase three clinical trial in major depression. Prior to Epix, he was leader of the VELK development program at Millennium Pharmaceuticals and held a number of senior positions at Millennium Predictive Medicine and Biogen. Just as the web was exploding in 1994, Michael created one of the first online medical textbooks. Michael received his MD and PhD from Johns Hopkins Medical School and is board certified in internal medicine. Welcome to Manifold, Michael. Thank you very much, Corey. It's great to be here. So I have to say that when COVID hit and we began thinking about possible guests to have on the show to discuss issues related to the pandemic, uh, you're one of the first people I thought of. But I knew you're a cancer guy. I had a sense you might have something up your sleeve when it comes to COVID. And uh, after I got in touch with you, it turned out that I was right. So yeah, I want to go back to your background because I think it's pretty interesting. And our readers have a sense of what it's like perhaps to start companies in tech, but I don't think our reader, our listenership is very well informed about what it's like to do startups in biotech. So I want to start with your current company and then backtrack if we could and talk a little bit about how you started previous companies and how you got to the point where you're at. What does Carrier Farm do? So Carrier Farm was started uh, initially by my wife who had uh, left a, her previous company and wanted to come up with something that approached cancer from an entirely new way uh, and it was applicable not to one type of cancer but potentially to many types of cancer. So she began reading the medical and, and scientific literature and <clears throat> after reading a lot of stuff and coming up with four or five ideas, all of which I killed, um, she came up with this idea to attack the protein exportin one which was from a rapidly emerging new field of nuclear cytoplasmic transport in the cell and seemed to be relevant across many cancers. And her idea was to create new small molecule drugs um, that would block this protein and could inhibit the growth of cancer cells specifically without really hurting normal cells. So there's a lot in that statement, Michael. Let's, um, our readership, sorry, our listenership is uh, very sophisticated. And uh, we have a lot of scientists. And our general approach is that we don't simplify things. We state things as precisely as they can be scientifically. And then we explain in detail uh, some of the concepts. So let's begin with cancer as a disease to treat. Why is it so hard to treat cancer? And give us an idea of how you came to approach cancer the way uh, 
your wife uh, came up with? Yeah, so, so cancer is, uh, obviously there are many different types of cancer, but what all cancers have in common is that they're uncontrolled proliferation growth of different cell types, and depending on where the cancer started, you get different cell types. But basically the cells behave in a way that is focused only on their own existence and not on being part of a multicellular, multi-system organ, uh, organism. <clears throat> and what we know from cancer are sort of the pillars of uh, hallmarks of cancer, if you will. And this is Steve Weinberg's conception of it. Uh, and one of those major pillars of cancer is, is that there are certain alterations of our normal cell processes. There are about six different major pillars. And cancer is really tough to treat is because all of these six alterations are actually pretty similar to what we do under normal circumstances. And in particular, um, cancer has co-opted a lot of the different functions that we use during stress responses, that we use during infections, that we use during appropriate inflammatory responses, wound healing, and even embryogenesis. And when you start to interfere with the processes of cancer, you end up interfering with normal cell processes and end up with the kind of side effects that we get. It's very different from treating uh, other diseases, especially infections, where you're dealing with a completely unusual different agent. Uh, and in fact, the, the farther away from us those agents are, in terms of evolution, the easier it is to treat them typically. We, we have some really good antiviral agents. We've cured hepatitis C virus. We have great anti-HIV drugs. We have decent drugs against the herpes viruses and so on. We can treat most bacterial infections. In fact, we can treat almost all bacterial infections. Um, and the predictions of you know, total disaster with bacteria have largely not come through because we're, we're really good at coming up with novel ways to treat them. We're a little less good at treating parasites and fungi most because those types of cells are um, eukaryotic in nature as opposed to prokaryotic or viruses, and it, they're just closer to us. Cancer represents a disease that is so close that normal cells do that, that coming up with truly insightful ways to treat it requires a lot more uh, clever approaches and is, is more subtle, if you will, than uh, treating, say, infectious diseases. Now, I think most people are familiar with the idea that cancers result from genetic mutations that cause cells to uh, you know, reproduce uncontrollably. Um, now, when you said there's six different ways in which cancers develop, you mean six different classes of mutations? Is that a proper way of thinking about it? Or six different, how would you, how would you connect the general sense of cancer is a result of genetic mutation leading to runaway cell growth with the six different forms of cancer, or at least origins that you mentioned? Yeah, the, I, we, we, they're usually characterized as hallmarks, and it's a little bit, you know, this is us applying our own sort of classification systems to things that evolved over a long, long time. Uh, but the genetic mutations are involved essentially in all six of these different hallmarks of cancers. Uh, one of the main hallmarks is mutations in genes that control growth in the sense that they drive growth. So growth driving genes, which are very appropriate when you have a wound that has to heal. Uh, you better make sure that cells are able to divide and create new cells to cover over the wound and, and take care of things. And it's the same thing when you have a broken bone, uh, when we get into trouble with various organ injuries and so on, and, re and recovering uh, and so on. So those kinds of proteins, when they are mutated, uh, end up leading to uncontrolled growth under, the, under a cancerous situation, whereas 
under normal circumstances, they do things that are very important. It turns out a lot of those same proteins, proteins like CMYK uh, and the SARC family of kinases and so on and so forth, all of these proteins are important in embryogenesis. That's how we get from being a two-celled uh, or fertilized, I should say, a fertilized uh, egg in, into becoming a multicellular organism. These are the, a lot of the same proteins that drive the rapid growth and development leading to uh, eventually, in most cases, a, a normal birth after nine months of pregnancy. You need all that stuff. Now, that's one aspect of, of mutation that occurs in cancer, and it's bad. So, so it just hijacks these natural cellular processes in some way? That's right. It turns them on forever, so there's no way to turn them off. Got it. Got it. Uh, can you give us an example of, of let's take myeloma, what you're focusing on. What's, what's a typical pathway for myeloma to develop from a normal cellular process? Right. Well, so for myeloma itself, there's actually a lot known about the normal cellular processes that are co-opted. Um, one of them has to do with these kinds of changes in, for instance, BCL2, the BCL2 so-called oncogene. BCL2 was named for B-cell lymphoma, second gene that was important in its genesis, um, but it turns out to be important in some forms of myeloma. And when you mutate that gene, you end up with a set of plasma cells, that is the cells that produce antibodies in your body, that become myeloma. They become cancerous plasma cells. And a mutation in this gene seems to drive that, can that, that particular form of myeloma. Now there's another form of, of cancer, of myeloma, a subtype that involves a separate set of genes, and those are called tumor suppressor genes. We have about 20 different tumor suppressor genes who are named because they do what the name says, which is when your body has a mutation that leads to cancer, we have a bunch of genes whose job it is to, pre to prevent that cancer from ever really growing. So all of us every day come up with cancerous mutations. This is a normal process. It's part of our DNA replication. You know, we have 3 billion base pairs in our genomes. Every time our cell divides, it makes 500 or 1,000 errors in that division. Some of those errors are, would be cancer-causing, but we never get cancer, most of us. And the reason for that is, is, we believe, is because there are about 20 different genes, and they code for proteins whose job it is to make sure that we don't develop cancer. Those tumor suppressor proteins act as sort of auditors for our cellular DNA. So when, when, you're, when you have a mutation in DNA and the, the gene, genes change, you have another set of auditors or policemen, if you will, whose job it is to detect the changes and either repair the changes or if there are too many bad changes to tell that cell to commit suicide. These, these are tumor suppressor proteins. The best known is P53. It's also called the guardian of the genome and it literally guards your genome. Now, one of the funniest uh, realizations that, or one of the most obvious ones now, realizations that, that uh, Dr. Sharon Shackham, my wife who founded the company had, was that in order for these tumor suppressor proteins to work, they have to be in the cell nucleus. And this was known, but when I say it was known, it was one of those facts that was around, but nobody really talked about it. The reason these tumor suppressor proteins have to be in the nucleus is because they're looking at the DNA, and that's where the DNA is. Cancer cells have figured out that if you just transport these tumor suppressors out of the nucleus, they stop working. And what Sharon realized was that there's a single transporter for all 20 of these major tumor suppressors. 
so, Michael, one question. If these uh, proteins have to be in the nucleus to function, why would they ever be transported out of the nucleus in the first place? Well, in order, in order to do the audit, uh, and this gets a little bit uh, of an analogy, but I think it actually works. You know, when you have your books audited, uh, if you're having your, your accounting books audited, you have to sort of stop the transactions. You can't go in and audit something while there's active transactions going on. So you freeze the books, if you will. The same thing the cell does. In order for the cell's DNA to be audited, it, its cell cycle has to stop. So every time the cells undergo this audit process, they, they come to a halt, their replication stops, and they, they are audited. If you ever want them to start replicating again, and in fact, doing many of the normal things that they do, you have to release this block. Tumor suppressor proteins, by their nature, induce cell stoppage. They, they block the cell cycle. That's a normal process so that the audit can be carried out. If you never let these tumor suppressors out of the nucleus again, the cell will never be able to divide again and will stop doing the kinds of things that it needs to do. And the belief is, is that you can't have one without the other. And if you're going to have an audit, you can't be doing your normal cell functions and normal cell division. So um, describe Sharon's realization then. She found a drug that uh, kept these proteins in the nucleus. Exactly. By blocking. So, so what, her, what her sort of eureka moment, and it was such a, it's one of these simple, elegant solutions that you say it's either really right or really wrong, and we can test it. Um, and she said to me, well, I, every time I read about one of these tumor suppressors like P53, BRCA1, the gene that's involved in breast cancer, hereditary breast cancer, and, and so on, um, P21, P27, a lot of these proteins, all, it turns out all of these tumor suppressor proteins are chaperoned or escorted out of the nucleus by a single carrier molecule called exportin-1. Now that may sound uh, obvious and, and maybe banal a little bit, but when you realize that there are eight different export chaperones, when biology decided that one and only one protein should be in charge of exporting tumor suppressors, as well as a bunch of other proteins, but the fact that all 20 tumor suppressor proteins are escorted by the same protein out suggested that there was some deep biology here. And what she realized is if she could design a drug that absolutely specifically inhibited XPO1 only, and none of the other seven transporters and none of the other important proteins of the cell, then we would have a chance to restore these tumor suppressors into the nucleus. In cancer cells, they would look at the DNA and figure out that these cells should commit suicide. In normal cells, the tumor suppressor cells would go in the nucleus, stop cell division, but realize that everything was fine. And when the drug went away, the export block goes away and those cells could continue. But again, back on the cancer cells, if we block nuclear export of tumor suppressors, the tumor suppressors accumulate in the nucleus, they look at the cell, they determine it's cancerous, and they initiate cell suicide called apoptosis. Once Short had this realization, what was the next step? So the, the first thing to do was to try to prove it quietly prior to any sort of patent filings or anything. We had to invest some money. We put about a half million dollars of our own money into it. And she went through her secret sauce as a drug discoverer and her, her trainings in biophysical chemistry was to, uh, was to obtain the three-dimensional structure of this protein, 
which ironically happened within about a month of her coming up with the idea. It was literally about March of 2010 uh, that she uh, actually thought of this idea. And in April, the 3D structure of Export in One was published uh, on the public databases uh, by Yu Min Chuk and, and some other people down at UT Southwestern. Yu Min Chuk, we've subsequently worked with a lot, but, but she downloaded the coordinates of the protein and she set off on her computer-based algorithm. This is a combination of commercial software plus her secret sauce that she had developed in a previous company and her in her PhD thesis, and, and looked for small molecule drugs, just standard chemicals that would inhibit this particular protein. And this computer-based algorithm really allows looking at like 3 million compounds that are commercially available across the entire world quickly on a computer narrowing it down to literally 50, five zero compounds, which we could purchase. So, so I want to get a sense, Michael, this is, this is purely simulation, right? You've got a sense of the 3D structure of these molecules and you're simulating their interaction with uh, this transport molecule. Exactly. This is like a lock and key. We think of drug, drug discovery as sort of the um, protein represents the lock and the drug is sort of the key in not to open the protein in this case, but to block it. Um, but that's the goal. So how can you tell this from simulation? What exactly were you visualizing? Not simply binding to the protein, but how could you tell it was blocking it? So that's a great question. It turns out that most small molecules that bind to proteins, not all, but most, turn, turn out to be inhibitors. Um, so you're quite right. I mean, all we were doing was actually looking for energy minimization regions where the energy of binding would be minimized. Um, which would be which would be maximal binding. Binding. Um, we couldn't tell a priori if these were inhibitors or activators of the protein. What happened then was she um, actually ordered 50 compounds, as I mentioned, from different chemical companies. We actually received them in our house. We stored them in our kitchen and our refrigerator, uh, literally. And we sent them off. We changed the name. We we made codes. Uh, she made codes, and because you don't want to tell the assaying company what you're actually testing, because if it's positive, you want to be able to move ahead now and file patents. So we coded each, each of the uh, chemicals, sent them off to, um, to one of the uh, standard places that do this. It turns out it was Thermo Fisher, a well-known company. They were doing nuclear export assays. And lo and behold, about eight of these compounds showed significant blockade of nuclear transport in the Thermo Fisher assay. And the best compound represented the starting point for the company. What kind of cells are these um, compounds being tested in? So the, the initial test is interesting. Um, it could be almost any type of cell. I believe it was an osteosarcoma cell line to begin with. But importantly, it was an osteosarcoma cell line that expresses high levels of the HIV REV, REV protein, which is known to be a, uh, an interactor with XPO1. So, so like, let's, let's stop for a second. Can we define a few of these terms? Sure. Uh, osteosarcoma. First, can you describe what kind of cancer cell that is? Yeah, osteo is for bone. So this is a bone tumor. Sarcoma means um, a tumor of connective tissue. So in this case, it's a bone connective tissue tumor. It's a fairly uncommon tumor, thankfully. Uh, but it's a cell line that can grow eat very easily in the lab. It grows fast, it grows easily. It's just an easy workhorse for these kinds of assays. And somebody had transduced a gene, um, actually one of our collaborators from Harvard Medical School, Pam Silver, 
uh, one of the co-founders in our company, had moved the gene for the HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, REV protein, REV protein, which was known to be transported by XPO1. And in these cells, they had played around with it such that the cells expressed the REV protein only in the cytoplasm. But when you added an XPO1 inhibitor, when you blocked nuclear transport, the HIV REV protein ended up in the nucleus. And that way you could tell if you had a positive protein, now the positive uh, compound. Now the reason we're actually able to, to know this assay works is because uh, about 20 years ago, someone had discovered a bunch of natural products that actually inhibit XPO1. And these are products that are made by soil bacteria. So it's an interesting evolutionary story that these soil bacteria use XPO1 to fight other, uh, so, pardon me, soil fungi to fight other fungi. And it's, it's just evolutionary conserved. So, so somehow these other soil bacteria, soil fungi are attacking these soil fungi in a way that gets their tumor suppressors out of their nucleus? Well, it's, yeah, it's a little more subtle than that. Um, in the, in, in the, and I didn't mean to make it more complicated, sure. but, but you, you asked me for the details. So, so it's, it's a great story. Um, we believe that evolution allowed the development of these natural product uh, inhibitors in order to prevent uh, com uh, competing fungi, if you will, from taking over. So in nature, of course, there's always fighting going on. There's always selection, et cetera. And a set of fungi had, had figured out that if they produce this particular toxin called leptomycin B, that that leptomycin B could kill other fungi that were trying to get, take over their space, if you will. And this leptomycin B turns out to block export in one. And it's a natural product. It's a nasty compound. It's very toxic. Uh, people have done studies in animals before and they just very, it makes the animals extremely sick or kills them. Um, but leptomycin B serves as a nice tool in the laboratory to block this export in one. So this, the assay was developed um, by, this, by this Harvard researcher, Dr. Pam Silver, uh, based on leptomycin B working in it, but no one had a drug yet, a real drug-like compound that could actually block XPO1, and no one could really do any kind of cancer testing with leptomycin B because it's just too toxic. It pretty much kills everything. But we had the assay. So you asked earlier, how do, how do you develop a company? Well, you need to figure out a target, and the target needs to have an assay where you can tell that you have inhibitors or activators of the target uh, as a first step. And, and Sharon was able to do that. She was able to take the 3 million compounds from the world's vast array of chemical libraries. By the way, this is all free because you get it all on the computer. It's all downloaded catalogs. Um, it's a lot cheaper than doing robotics and you know, actual wet assays one at a time. And, and she honed it down to 50 compounds of which eight actually worked. And the best one, inhibited or blocked XPO1 transport uh, somewhere around two or three micromolar, which means it took two or three micromolar to inhibit transport uh, by about half. So, so give me some scale, Michael, two or three micromolar. Give me a benchmark. A lot, is that a lot, is that a little compared yeah. to what? So that's, that's a great starting point, thanks. Um, it's, it, it's, we take it for granted sort of the drug development industry, but. But anything that's better, it's lower than 10 micromolar, is considered a good start. Um, most drugs that block targets, especially in cancer, do so in the nanomolar range. 
So we had to improve things by about a thousand fold before we could be, uh, get serious and start to go into significant animal testing and then human testing. But as a starting point, two, two to three micromolar was a very good starting point. And what we knew is we had to modify that com those chemicals then to do better, to get it down into the 10 to 20 nanomolar range was the goal. Got it. Um, but before we hop in more, so we have a division of labor on this show. Uh, one of us tends to go into detail with our guests. The other is the audience ombudsperson. So I should ask Steve, um, any questions at this point for Michael? Um, yeah, I have a couple of things that maybe the audience would like to hear about. So one, um, this development, it sounds like, I think you mentioned storing things in your home. Was it not also covered under the university uh, IP uh, for these researchers? Was it, was it done partially at university? No, actually, this, uh, the assay itself was never patented, which was interesting. Um, but although Thermo Fisher uh, sold it and it was available to anybody, the chemical compounds uh, were available through catalogs throughout the world. And you, you, cannot, you cannot patent, uh, at least not composition of matter patents, meaning you can't patent chemical structures that already exist. You can attempt to patent new uses of those chemical compounds that already exist. But in pharmaceuticals, we generally try to come up with completely novel uh, compounds. Now, we always start with, we often start with existing compounds that are known, but we modify them to such an extent that it's not obvious that you would get to a drug. So, so no, there were no actual patents in all this. And part of our early work, uh, when we started to have to get lawyers involved was to make sure that there were no competing patents and, and nothing we had missed. So this research, I guess, uh, was it, it, it sounds like a big chunk of it was just uh, mainly informatical, like using, looking at uh, structures of molecules and doing some computer matching. Was it really done in someone's house, like on someone's Mac at home? Or was, was there a more of a laboratory infrastructure, but not at a university that was being utilized? No, this was, this was truly an at-home effort. I mean, I, you know, the, uh, as, as I like to say, the public records would show, we didn't have any offices. Um, I was the chief medical officer at the time at Proteolics and then Onyx, as Corey mentioned at the beginning. Um, so I was running back and forth to San Francisco. We live near Boston in Newton. Uh, and Sharon was working on this literally at, at our house uh, in, in, on a PC. Um, I don't think Mac could run the software back then, but I think they can now. And it's remarkable that what used to take a series of like 20, 24 Sun Microsystems computers in parallel could be done on a laptop for these these rather extensive binding curves or simulations. Um, and, and we, you know, we ordered the compounds and then we coded them at home, sent them off to Fisher Scientific and got the uh, Thermo Fisher and, and got the results. So this was all done before we ever had any office space. So this sounds like a story where, you know, advancing compute technology and these databases that are publicly available are accelerating drug discovery I always hear the story that the pace of drug discovery has really slowed down. And a lot of the big public companies, you know, their pipelines are not what they used to be. Can you give us a better feeling for what's actually happening in the world of drug discovery right now? Yeah, the, the problem is not so much that we can't discover the drugs. The drugs are actually fairly linearly, dis I mean, it's fairly easy to discover new chemicals. The problem has really been target identification. Um, the key for all human diseases 
is figuring out what the right target or targets are to interfere with, either to block them or to augment them. And coming up with what we call biologically validated or uh, <clears throat> physiologically validated targets for diseases is difficult. And that's been the real, the real tough part of all of medicine. Uh, a lot of the chemistry has been solved. We can make many compounds that even we couldn't make before, but finding the right biological targets has been the tough thing. And so I'm not, not sure I understand that. So the, this biological target um, step, is that something you have to do in mouse or something? Is, it, is that ahead of you guys or is it ahead of the story that we're at right now? Uh, let, yeah, let's, let's take a step back. It's, it's a great question. Um, there are about 30, we, we believe there are about 30,000 human genes and making about, you know, 30 to 60,000 proteins. And you can argue about definition of proteins that are highly related and identical or close enough and so on. But there are some, somewhere around 30 to 60,000 proteins in, in your body. The goal of most medicines is to block one or two or three or four of them or to augment one or two or three or four of those proteins. The, the trick is to find out what the right protein is to block. Um, I'll, give a, I'll give a simple example. For, for HIV, we have over 30 drugs now, I believe, approved for HIV. And we have five or six different classes of drugs that attack HIV because they attack different parts of the HIV virus. And do, usually you give three of the drugs at one time and that gives really good results and it suppresses virus usually for many, many years. And when it stops working, you change to, to attack different, uh, other, different other proteins in the HIV. Well, humans, human uh, diseases are a lot more complicated, right? HIV, we know the genome, we know all the different proteins involved in HIV, at least for the virus. Uh, but what, in most human diseases, we don't know all the proteins that are actually involved in the, in the pathogenesis or the, or the development of these diseases. So we have to figure that out in two ways. One is we do all kinds of genetic manipulation on model systems. Uh, this gets published and you can read almost all these papers in Medline and so on. And there, there are many good uh, uh, colloquia and seminars and big meetings where we discuss new targets. So new target identification is usually done biologically um, with with many different techniques, siRNA and so on and so forth. There's just a lot of ways to try to figure out new targets. The problem is there's no good model system really for humans, except for humans. And the only real way to test most new drug targets is to make a drug that can go into humans and actually put it into people and hope that your animal model and your test tube model, if you will, actually was relevant. And, and that's, so the second part of drug um, or target validation really depends literally on pharmaceutical products. We don't know that, we didn't know, for example, that erythropoietin was important for the production of new red blood cells. We thought so because in animal models it is, but until we made synthetic erythropoietin and injected it into people and saw that their blood counts went up, we didn't know that humans would respond to erythropoietin. And this is, this is the same thing over and over again. It's one of, the, one of the great difficulties in drug development. We have a lot of great ideas. We have a lot of great biological model systems that support those ideas. And you know, you'll often hear the cynical comment that we've cured mouse cancer uh, two decades ago because mice, mouse with cancers uh, actually respond to different things than we do. And then we go and you translate that into humans and only about 5% of the things that we think are going to work 
that worked in animals. They all worked in animals, but only about 5% of the things that worked in animals actually work in people. So th that was a great explanation. Um, can I just back up for one second? And this, this basic idea of, of finding the molecular target, uh, with, or, or say finding a protein that you uh, want to affect, um, with 30,000 to work with, but a very complicated organism like a human, how often is it the case that, you know, you have a clue that to cripple HIV, you need to affect a particular protein, um, but that drug has tremendous side effects on other functions uh, in the organism, and you just have to abandon it for that purpose. Is that a common occurrence, or can you just get away with attacking or suppressing certain proteins, and it only, it only does the job you want without doing other things? Yeah, so I know my infectious disease colleagues won't be thrilled with me, but I would say one of the reasons it's easier to treat infectious diseases than it is cancer is because when you're dealing with an entirely different organism, like a virus or a, or a, a parasite or a, a fungus or a bacterium, it's, you know those, those organisms have proteins that are unique to those organisms, and you can make drugs that target only those proteins in the, in the offending organism. Got it. Now, many times the drugs that we make will mistakenly will, and that's the question you ask, you know, how often are you sure that they're working on the right thing, but they also hit stuff you don't want them to. And that's the old case of, well, we made a great key and it opens that lock or it locks that lock, but it also blocks a bunch of others that you didn't want it to do. And again, you know, we do animal testing and I, I, I believe we still need to continue to do that until we figure out a better way. We test our drugs on at least two different species uh, before they ever get into humans because most of those compounds that are going to be toxic to humans are actually going to be toxic in animals also. Not all, but most. And we can eliminate maybe 20 or 30 percent of compounds right away from ever even getting into humans by testing in, in animals. We also have a bunch of assays because we don't really want to test things on animals. We prefer to do it in test tubes. We have a bunch of preliminary assays in test tubes that can allow us to predict when drugs are going to be toxic. And many drugs never even get into animals because they fail these toxicity tests uh, in the test tube. Then they go to animals. And then in humans, we still have somewhere around a 10 to 20% rate of drugs that end up being too toxic for humans uh, and don't do the desired thing. And therefore, we have to abandon them. So just to emphasize a point that Michael made, which is that a cancer cell is actually a cell that's operating in your body. And so to find a protein that interferes with some aspect of its function, it's, it's, it's sort of innately more dangerous than trying to do it to some invading virus cell or something, which is very different. So I think, I guess that was a good point to reinforce. In terms of the capital requirements to go from idea to actual drug, Maybe you can describe for our audience, like, what do you need to do these preliminary, this preliminary level of testing? What do you need to actually get it into a trial where actually, uh, you know, using humans? How does that, how does that look? And, and one of the things that shocks, uh, uh, well, shocks entrepreneurs from other areas of technology is that in the drug discovery business, companies IPO at a very early stage before they're, you know, ready to really market a product or, or sell anything to anyone. And I guess it's largely on the promise of what they're going to develop. And so I think the, the capital requirements stream is just very different in your industry than, say, what people in software are used to. Yeah, we, we unfortunately never find out if we have a product until the FDA blesses our product. Uh, and that's typically uh, anywhere between five and 10 years after it ever goes into people. 
And so, like you say, it's it it really depends on on selling an idea and people trying to read the tea leaves um, early on. It the this you do have stages, and there are stage gates, and there's different capital requirements as you get further along. I mean, most drugs today cost for the successes. The overall cost of most drugs today is somewhere around two billion dollars before it actually. If you if you include all the failures, because in larger companies you have to, uh, you know, you have to do a lot of testing and you have to pay for the failures as well as and the successes are the only things that pay for them. You know, smaller companies sort of live or die on whether their drugs are successful or not. We we spent about half a billion dollars before our drug was approved, and the hope by all investors is that eventually this will produce more value than than we obviously ate up in that process. And I think it's fair to say that that's true. Our valuation is, you know, today is at least our enterprise value. So if you take the total value of the company um, and subtract the cash we have on hand, we're about a billion dollar company. So we approximately doubled the investment now, but the expectation is that someday we'll be a much bigger company as our sales increase and, and so on. So the, the reason people continue to invest in this business is because they, the successes will really pay for things. Now, if you back off a little bit, um, it's a little different than software, of course, and tech where you have to actually produce something that works, get somebody to buy it, and then you really start to attract investors. What, what people do um, in our industry is they come up with good ideas. Um, Sharon, we ha had a good idea. Um, we didn't have any academics that were associated. This was really her idea. Uh, we did bring in a couple of co-founders to get their expertise and advice and help. And so on. I mentioned Dr. Pam Silver early on. We did a collaboration with the Catholic University of Leuven, Kaluven, um, who had some uh, beautiful data uh, in this field of nuclear cytoplasmic transport. We worked with Yumin Chuck on x-ray crystallography and making sure that our drug bound to the protein uh, where we thought it did, and it turned out that worked out. But we had to spend about a million dollars total before we got our first big investor. That consisted of about a half a million dollars of our money in cash, plus about half a million dollars in promises to a whole bunch of people from lawyers to assay developers to um, chemists that were working all on the hope and promise that the shares that we intended to issue them someday would be worth something. And this is, you know, this is entrepreneurship. I mean, this is people who are getting up every morning and asking people to believe in them and essentially working with blood and sweat equity to, to get into a company that frankly in biotech has at the time we started the company has, you know, a one in a thousand chance of actually leading to a drug that ever gets approved. Those are the numbers. Um, but it's super cool when it works. And that's why we have amazing new miraculous drugs so frequently these days is we have a lot of companies and we have a lot of people working on stuff, but most stuff doesn't work. I'm sorry. Did you, did you say one in a thousand or one in a hundred? I didn't, I couldn't hear you. No, it's uh, from the time you come up with an idea and sort of get started and put in capital, say more than a hundred grand. Um, it's, it's about one in a thousand. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. And, and by the time you even get into humans, just to bring it back to some of the numbers we talked about, if you're in humans, you have about a one in 20 chance of being approved overall one in two zero. So obviously your odds changed a lot. They went from one, one in a thousand to one in 20, but they're still not really great odds unless you have a strong stomach. Now, in, in terms of this first million in, in your case, is that a somewhat unusual story? Like what, what is a typical source for the first million or two in uh, on a company like this? 
So the stories are kind of variable all over. We definitely were atypical because not only did we put, people put in their own money when, when they can. They get friends and family sometimes. They have what are called angel investors. And there's a bunch of uh, that kind of uh, available thing around. But typically for a new idea, um, they, they also, many new ideas come directly out of academic labs uh, based on research and patent offices. And that can attract some academic funding. Uh, and or NIH funding. And usually there has to be some proof of concept, either in a test tube or preferably an animal before you can get um, significant money to come in. And when I say significant money in biotech, that's typically a series A uh, fundraising. So the series A will come after the quote founders or angel investors. And the foundering investments or the grant money will typically be on the order of, of uh, a quarter million to, to a couple of million dollars. But if you want to progress beyond that, you really have to start to get into the uh, typically 10 to even 70, $80 million investments. And that's what you typically raise a Series A, Michael? That's right. So we raised a Series A um, a little bit unusually. This, the whole project was unusual. Um, Sharon, uh, in, in true entrepreneurial and, and Israeli spirit, I would say, wrote, did cold emails to about 10 of the best cancer researchers in Boston. Um, and obviously we have lots of great educational institutions here and she wrote to a lot of great people. One in particular, uh, Dr. Ron DePino, who went on, who was running one of the major institutes at Dana-Farber Cancer Center and went on to become the, uh, the president of MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, Ron wrote back to her immediately and said, this is a fantastic idea. I kind of wrote about this a few years ago, but I didn't really, come to the right conclusion, and I love it, and I want to be involved, big time. And, you know, we, we met Ron, and, and we were all very excited to work together. So, so Sharon and myself and Ron and a couple of collaborators really got together. Um, of, uh, several months after meeting Ron, we, he introduced us to a, one of his benefactors, one of the people that had, that had donated money to the Dana-Farber that he knew, uh, a multi-billionaire named uh, Vyastislav Smolikowski also known as Slava Smolikowski, who um, comes out of, uh, was born in the Ukraine and, and lives uh, primarily in Warsaw. And we met Slava and he decided to invest $20 million in Series A into the company. And this was an amazing meeting. Basically, Slava said, if, if Ron believes in the science, I believe in it. But Slava got his very good friend, uh, a guy named Dr. Mansour Raza Mirza, to be on, uh, be in the diligence. And Mansour is actually the head of gynecologic oncology in Copenhagen, in University of Copenhagen. So Mansour did the diligence on the company. Mansour remains a board member of Cario Farm. And, and he's been a great advisor for us going forward. So we really put together a nice group of people and a somewhat unusual thing. Normally, you'll get venture capital funding in the order of, like I said, about 10 to 80 million, typical Series A. And the venture capitalists will come together, usually um, three or four of them, and they'll join your board. And you'll have a very different kind of board than we did. We, we were lucky to have a single um, multi-billionaire investor along with his uh, MD friend and Ron DePino and, and uh, his colleague, Julio Dryetta, and myself and Sharon. So um, it, at some point, will, be, will there be a visit to the public markets in your future? Or do you, can you go uh, the whole way without doing that? No, it's almost impossible. Um, we, so we, we, it took us about $15 million 
to get the drug into people. And it, it was lucky that at the drug started to show activity. Uh, we were a private company at that point. We had the one investment. We did a series B fundraising uh, as, as the first uh, glimpses that the drug might have activity and be tolerable uh, occurred. And that was in, uh, in 2012, late 2012. We raised about $40 million for, uh, $42 million in a series B fundraising. Uh, who was led by a friend of Slava's. It's one nice thing about wealthy people. They know other wealthy people who might be. In- they, all, they all know each they other. They know each other. Um, and this was Grisha Yankelevich. And Grisha led that round. Uh, Slava came in. We had several uh, other private individuals that came in. And we had our first venture capitalist come into that round. It's a woman I knew, uh, Deepa Pakinathan, who ran a uh, partner at Delphi Ventures. I generally, um, venture capitalists are, are very, very bright people. They're very driven. They're very focused. It's difficult though, because their focus is to make money and that's appropriate. That's their job. And that's why people invest in their funds. Uh, sometimes that's not uh, commensurate with uh, being able to, to do good drug development. It just makes it more difficult. Um, so, but, but I had worked with Deepa before. She was involved in Proteolics and Onyx and she joined our board. And as the data started to come in, we had more and more interest because when you start to have patients who have refractory cancers, meaning cancers whose disease had progressed despite all of the best therapy we have now, um, and we were giving them oral, our drug is taken by mouth. It has some annoying toxicities, but nothing very dramatic. Sorry, Buck, what, what are those toxicities before we go on? Yeah, and, and we, we're not trying to sugarcoat it. We would, these are truly side effects as opposed to sort of devastating toxicities. For instance, your hair does not fall out. We cause nausea. We cause people to lose their appetite. Uh, we cause fatigue. And we cause low, lower counts of primarily of their platelets, which are the cells in your, or the pieces of cells in your bloodstream that help you clot. It turns out all of these side effects that we cause are reversible. And most of them are actually preventable. We have a slew of really good medicines to prevent nausea. So once we were starting to see nausea in our patients, we said, the doctor should strongly consider giving the patient anti-nausea agents, either one or two. And for the patients who got the anti-nausea agents, their nausea went away. For the fatigue, it's a little tougher. A lot of the fatigue was turned out to be because their appetite was down. And we have, not only is it, you can have the conversation with folks, please try to eat even when you're not that hungry. One thing is our drug, the anorexia goes away after a couple of months but at the first two months, it can be really problematic. So we have drugs that stimulate appetite. And we gave those drugs and it prevented a lot of this. And then a lot of the fatigue went away. And for the patients who had low platelet counts, if you stop the drug, the platelet counts come back in two weeks and it's fine. And luckily most of the patients, nearly all don't have bleeding um, despite these low platelet counts. So that worked out. In addition, there are some new drugs that can help you boost your platelet counts. So, all of the cases of our side effects are reversible, almost all of them are reversible and, and don't really form toxicities as opposed to some of the major toxicities you get with chemotherapy, which can be nerve damage, uh, low white counts leading to severe infections and this sort of thing. So we were starting to see good, good activity um, and we attracted some more investors in what became a series B prime, we call it sort of a B2 if you will. Uh, we, we raised about another 15 or 20 million. That was unexpected. And one thing you learn in biotech is you raise money when you can, because if you try to wait till when you need it, 
uh, you end up really hurt, generally hurting the company. And about, um, about a year after the Series B, we were able to go public, take the company public. We had very nice clinical uh, data in humans with refractory cancers, mostly in myeloma and lymphoma. Uh, and, and we did our IPO in 2013 and raised about $125 million there and have done several what are called secondary offerings since then uh, to the tune, as I mentioned. We've raised to date, I think, as of most recently, we've raised about $800 million. The drug was approved a year ago uh, for refractory myeloma, and Corey mentioned that in the beginning. Um, we had spent about $500 million at the ten, from the time we started the company until the actual approval and the first sale of Expovio for patients with refractory myeloma. So, I mean, thanks for going into that. And I, I don't know if, Corey, that was part of your plan, but I think a lot of listeners are just interested, especially if they come from the more of the software uh, or IT side of um, entrepreneurship that myself included don't really understand how drug discovery um, entrepreneurship works and what the funding processes look like, et cetera, et cetera. So what what I find it just to make a comment on it, I think it's amazing because you're, you're talking about a multi-year, extremely complex, extremely capital intensive process, you know, to bring a drug to market. And it, it is really an incredible kind of a feat of modern market capitalism that it can it can do this right i mean it can marshal half a billion dollars and and you know get a hundred md phd type people working for you know almost a decade i mean just it's just kind of nice to step back and marvel at it and i just add fuel to that fire i i just it is one of the most um important things that that modern uh, capitalism and and the u.s being absolutely the world's leader um We've, we've taken over from practically every other country now in, in new drug development. It is the, these are the miracles of modern day medicine. It's astonishing what's been able to be accomplished. These are extremely costly. They're high risk. They're crazy timelines, like you said. But it is, it is just a marvel that we can develop these compounds. Um, we used to refer to the new antibiotics as wonder mices. I mean, and, and really some of the new cancer drugs, giving people years when it used to be six month death sentences and, and grueling therapies have turned into chronic therapies for a lot of people. And I appreciate you saying that. And I, I do want to say that I'm very proud to be part of this, this industry and, and being able to support this. Cause I think we all need to, to realize that the things we're all inevitably going to need as we grow older um, are going to come out of these sort of crazy funding um, capital labor, intellectual power intensive areas. Yeah, the, the software and other tech industry is very different because you, you kind of know from the get-go whether in, or very soon whether the product actually could work. And it's more a question of what is a market fit? Like, do, do people really want that app or that device or, you know, so it's a very different world. Um, and, let you know, less uncertainty and extending over, uh, you know, not usually not quite as a long period of time. The question I wanted to ask is the following. So there's always this issue of, you know, the U.S. spends so much of its GDP on healthcare. And there's always this claim that, oh, we could just become a single payer system like the NHS in the UK and we'd save everybody money. But then the question is, is a disproportionate amount of the downstream payoff for what investors are trying to get, say, out of your activity, is that contingent on us having this very expensive healthcare system in the United States? If we went to single payer and cut you know, by factor two, the fraction of GDP we were spending on healthcare, would it not 
slow down uh, drug discovery and, and reduce drastically the amount of capital available to people like you? Yeah, I have a, a pretty strong opinion on this. And, and for people that are interested, there's a book by a, a guy named Peter Kolchinsky, who's actually a trained PhD virologist turned successful venture capitalist. But Peter's book, uh, Kolchinsky, K-O-L on the last name, um, The Great American Drug Deal, it makes a really good point. And that is that, that number one, drugs are the only part of healthcare that whose costs eventually goes down. And the reason for this is our generic um, system and the fact that patents extend for 17 years from the time of the accepted filing. Uh, nuanced, you know, plus or minus a few years, depending on how long you spend in clinical trials. But the beauty of drugs is, is that they ultimately become generic. And the most expensive total um, expenditure for, for our U.S. drug system are all generic drugs because they're the antihypertensive, anti-diabetics, and so on that have been off patent and are now made at pennies a pill. I think the most commonly prescribed drugs in the U.S. are now the uh, reflux medications that were you know, branded Prilosec and, and now is pennies you can get over the counter at CVS and so on. So it, it is part of the drug deal that we, that we have. We do, we, if we want to continue innovation, and these are just facts. I mean, people invest in things they think they can make money. Um, companies like mine get to be where they are because you know, we have a $1.3 billion market cap we, we sold all of $35 million worth of um, Expovio last year uh, or to date. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll continue and eventually it'll become a lot more. But we got to be at this market cap because people expect that eventually we're going to sell a lot of the drug. And that's partly because the drug is priced uh, at a high level because it's a cancer drug that can extend life. And it's commensurate with the other drugs in this class. And it's, it's frankly, it is partly to recoup the investments and support the next generation of drugs. So it is very simple. The, only, the reason the US is the leader in new drug discoveries is because we have the capital structure and the intellectual horsepower, but there's a lot of places with intellectual horsepower that just don't have the capital structure or the risk tolerance to invest in this field. Well, I wanted to tease that out a little bit because you could have the venture capital networks and the ability to invest in the human capital that will develop the drugs that could, in principle, be different from the health system that is willing to pay a lot of money for a few extra years of life at the end of your life after you've developed some kind of cancer, right? If you had a health system that just refused to pay for that extra treatment, then none of this would work, right? Because the, the, the return on investment for this just wouldn't be sufficient to get the money in play. Does that, does that make sense? I mean... The question is, does there not have to be some huge economy that's willing to kind of, in a sense, overspend on last few years of life or some special cures in order to support this whole discovery uh, infrastructure? Yeah, I, I, there absolutely has to be. And we are it. Um, we, we, like we, we in the U.S. support many institutions around the world, uh, in fact, or, or de facto, or, or, you know, are upfront about it. This is one that we support de facto. Um, Europe has decided that they're just not going to spend the money on this stuff. And if, if we as small companies had to rely on our European sales, uh, dollar for dollar, it would be about one third of what we would get here. And we would never get funded. We just wouldn't. People would not focus on this kind of stuff. People wouldn't develop drugs for orphan diseases, typically, because you, you'd have to charge a million dollars a patient to, to literally save their life. 
Um, and if you can't get that reimbursed, you're, it's not a market that anybody would, would be willing to spend. Like I said, we can't go, we don't have time to go into the whole economics of it here, but at the top, at the top, highest level, um, there's no question that we as the U.S. have made a decision that if we're going to advance medicine, we have to be willing to pay these prices. Um, and again, I stress that the one thing the public misses in all this and all the discussions you know, overlook, either passively or actively overlook, um, is the fact that drugs are the only component of the healthcare system that you can actually reduce the prices. It's highly unlikely that we're gonna start paying doctors half of what they make here now and continue to have the quality of doctors that we, we have. They do, in most other countries, they pay doctors a lot less than they pay in the US, except that in most of those other countries, the really good doctors become private doctors. Um, and it's like everything else in economics, there have to be incentives. The other, the other last point on medicine, and, and even since I graduated Hopkins in 92, medicine has become amazing compared to where we were. And if we continue on the same rate, we're gonna be more amazing in 30 years and so on. But medicine only gets better because we make incremental advances and people pay for those. Used to be that heart failure, you died in a year. That way it used to be. Now it's five to 10 years. And the reason is, is because we made incremental advances with each new therapy coming. So now we treat heart failure with a cocktail of four or five different drugs. And all of them together have led to this sort of five year survival. HIV, as everyone knows, used to be pretty fatal within about a year. And AZT was a good first step. But it's the recent, more recent therapies over the last 10 years that have jumped on that and made it into a chronic disease where you can almost live a normal life for a normal lifespan. And I, I think we're all very proud of that stuff. So we better we just make sure we're careful when we start to alter the economics which allowed that to occur. Yeah, I just wanted to emphasize that because I really think it's underappreciated, right? I mean, it's nice now we have a, a description in your case, a very personal description of what it took to get this drug to market, how many years of effort, how many dollars of investor commitment. And then we can link it back to you know what normally seems like an outrageous thing. Whenever we quote the fraction of GDP that the US spends on healthcare, it seems like a scandal. If you just look at that number in isolation, it's a scandal, right? Or if you say, hey, what fraction of dollars spent in our healthcare system are just spent at end of life you know, to prolong some guy's life for a few years? That also seems like a scandal, right? But when you then combine it with your story, then you realize, oh, but yes, but after a while, when that drug goes off patent, it's basically free for everybody else. So all future generations get those few extra years of life if they need it from that drug for pennies, right? And right. that whole story in its fullness, I think, is not understood by very many people. Yeah, I think it's, it's and the, the, uh, the goal is that in 10 years, we're not doing things the same way. The goal is just as we did with HIV, we started off with AZT, we had DDI, we had DTC, and so on. And those have all been replaced by much better drugs. The question is, how long do you want to wait between the initial set of drugs and the second set of drugs that, that changed the game and now made HIV chronic? The same thing happened with hepatitis C virus. We had interferon initially to treat it. Tough stuff, worked some of the time, a lot of side effects. Then we added ribavirin, tough stuff, other side effects. Then we started to build other things and we started to get glimmers that we would get to long-term disease control. And now we have a cure for H HCV, hepatitis C virus. That, that stuff comes in increments. It isn't like somebody woke up one day and said, I'm gonna cure hepatitis C virus. 
they, it's what we started off talking about. You don't prove anything about diseases until you make drugs for them. And, and those drugs lead to new drugs, lead to new drugs. Same thing I think in, in most of science, right? You, you sort of stand on the shoulders of giants. And we, we say that all the time, but we forget in medicine that these incremental benefits lead to breakthroughs. Uh, we've seen that in cancer therapy as well. So my, my hope is that medicine continues to accelerate its, you know, the speed of change and the speed of improvement to the, get to the point where we have diseases that are largely controllable for a long time, if not cured. Eventually those drugs all become generic. So you're not spending a lot of money as much anymore. And then we have a lot of other things that we got to deal with, and you, you mentioned them. You know, end-of-life care can be defined in, in different ways. Certainly end-of-life care for, for COVID-19, just to take a topical example, we're spending $4,000 or $5,000 a day for people to be on ventilators. I don't think anybody in this country thinks that's a bad use of $5,000 a day, even if anywhere between 20 and 50% of those patients are likely going to die. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, we're spending a lot of money now in this crisis, just as we do for people with non-COVID-19 end-of-life stuff. And it, it's a, these are difficult problems. There's a difference between that acute problem of a, an acute virus and, and a respiratory failure and sort of the end-of-life is our drug, our estimates, our best end estimates, and this is purely um, based on non-comparative studies because that's the only way to do them. You know, we can probably, for some patients, we can add five or six months of life where, where they would have been dead within months. Now it's going to be eight to 10 months or something. Is it worth the kind of money you're going to spend for those people? Most of the people taking our drugs say it is. I would say pretty much everybody because they can always decide not to. So we want to make those things available. So Steve, I want to hop in here a little bit because I think Mike, um, if you step back in history a little bit, you'll see that, uh, and I'd like to get your reaction to this, there was a big push in the 90s by a lot of large drug companies to develop new drugs. And that seemed to fail in many, many cases. So the ecosystem changed. So in fact, what you're describing of your history is really a product of, I think, late 90s, 2000, essentially uh, having small companies take on risks for larger companies. Is that picture correct? Yeah, I think that the the emerging picture is is that a lot of the entrepreneurship and risk taking gets done in small companies, not all of it, but the nature of new discovery, and I think you know software engineers see this also. Um, a lot of people do is it, it's very hard to make breakthroughs by committee, right? You got to have people that are willing to say, "I'm going to figure out a way to make this work," or "I'm going to go down with the ship trying." And that, that's just not the way larger companies, I don't believe in most any area work, typically. Um, it's a lot easier for a group of crazy people who have to risk everything to come up with a novel idea uh, for our drug. And this is, the, this is the third company I've been in now where we, we did crazy things and they worked. Um, one, Corey mentioned, didn't work. So that was the fourth company. But three out of four ain't bad. And everybody, when we started these projects, told us that we were crazy and that we were never going to be able to make the drugs. And if we did, they were going to be too toxic and you just can't do this and you shouldn't bother and work on something else. And that's what happens at larger companies. So you have to have this mentality that you're going to, you're going to figure out a way. Yeah, you're, you're totally preaching to the converted on that topic. And in, in medicine, it's easy to understand because like you said, all kinds of 
things had to go your way for you to be the one in the thousand, right, that succeeded. What's more shocking is that if it's some kind of idea in computer science or IT or software, you would think the big company could figure it out and would go there and do it. But even that much smaller, more predictable jump in innovation is often absent in big organizations, and it takes a small startup to actually to do it. it that, that, that part is actually more counterintuitive to me. Well, um, another example I'll just tell you is that we, we're just less risk averse. And, and remember that almost every new innovation has 50,000 50, reasons why it isn't going to work and about one, maybe one or two pathways to get it to work until you get it to work. And then everybody, of course, jumps on and says, great, of course, that's great. You know, it works. So not only is the initial discovery or idea easier in a small company, the kinds of risks we'll take with regulators, and we are a heavily regulated industry. I mean, it's, it's very, very carefully, the oversight on our industry is extraordinary. Um, and you can debate whether it's too much or too little, but in general, if, if you believe it's about right, you know, you're talking about human health and you don't wanna hurt people. On the other hand, you have to balance uh, people who are destined to die with almost 100% certainty with a given, within a given period and who want to try something new and their doctors agree, you know, that's an option we like to make available for people. Um, and so a smaller company like ours will go and say to FDA or, or the European regulators and so on, we wanna try this in these patients and we'll make sure of this safety parameter and we'll do these lab testing and we'll take the risk. And there is a, always a chance the regulator is gonna come back and say, no, we're not gonna let you do that, it's too risky. And if they don't do that to you, then the institutional review board at the actual hospitals or clinics where you do the studies or the ethics committees in Europe will come back and say that. Those, that kind of interaction in a large company, a large pharmaceutical company is often career ending. So if you do, if you suggest a risk and the risk turns out to be bad, that, that the risk wasn't worth it or the, you get a no, then your career is pretty much shot at a large company because you're graded on moving things ahead and not causing problems. Yeah, that's exactly why even in software where things are more predictable, the big company often doesn't innovate. It's because the local incentive for the manager at the big company is quite different and something that an entrepreneur is readily willing to take the risk on to move his little startup ahead just gets stalled out in the big company. Yeah. So Michael, I'd like to, um, I want to shift into COVID uh, because you're actually in clinical trials with your drug in COVID, which is a really interesting twist. But before that, I actually want to get a, I want to get a sense of Sharon's background um, because you know she's been an equal partner in this company. So how, what's her background? What brought her to the point of uh, being able to essentially come up with an idea for this drug essentially at a kitchen table and make it make it make it realistic. Yeah. So Sharon Sharon was um, grew up in Israel in in a town called Ranana, which is right outside of Tel Aviv, and uh, went to uh, went to the Israeli army. So she keeps me in line. She she was a lieutenant when she graduated, an officer. She graduated from the Israeli army, and then she went to Tel Aviv University, where she got a PhD in biophysical chemistry and an MBA as well. And she was actually programming for Microsoft, specifically Microsoft Excel, uh, when she had an offer to join one of the labs there for a, for, um, to do a little bit more in PhD thesis and work on the discovery of algorithms for 
predicting how to make new drugs quicker, the way we described at the beginning. So her training was in using modeling, using protein structure modeling and binding energies uh, with small molecules to predict how do I get to a drug or a potential drug candidate way faster than the laborious and highly capital intensive uh, efforts of what used to be robotics, where you'd isolate a protein, you would test, maybe you could test 100,000 compounds at a time, she can test 3 million. Um, the cost would be enormous in the tens of millions of dollars, uh, including all of this, the startup fees and, and so on. And the problems with um, assays going wrong and people getting sick and, and you, you know all this stuff um, would be avoided. Now, you can't completely avoid all that stuff, but reducing the problem from one of 100,000 or 200,000 starting compounds down to 50 compounds is enormous. And the cost goes down logarithmically as well. Um, so so that, her background was there. And actually, a PhD, her PhD thesis at Tel Aviv led to this company called Predix Pharmaceuticals, um, where I became the CEO here in the US, and the research was being done in Israel. And she moved herself and her family over from Israel to the U.S. because she saw that research was going to stay in Israel, but development of new, can new compounds um, for depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, and schizophrenia were all going to be done here in the U.S. Yeah, that's where most, that's where most of my familiarity is with uh, these large companies working on neuroscience drugs and just having you know, large-scale failure after large-scale failure in the 90s. And so uh, this company Predix, they were started in Israel in this and right. Yeah. And what, what was the background of the company? Well, it was, it the idea was to come up with um, computer based algorithms to, to, to discover drugs for G, uh, a group of proteins called G protein coupled receptors, GPCRs, GPCRs. No, I mean, no one talks about them in the, in the normal every day, but people know about beta blockers and many of the migraine drugs, drugs for nausea, uh, and so on, are all drugs that bind to proteins that fall into this class GPCRs. Until um, about, about eight years after her PhD thesis was done, um, no, sort of normal GPCR structure had not ever been, been elucidated. No one had ever figured out what they actually looked like in three-dimensional space. Uh, and so drug development was hampered because if you do know the three-dimensional structure of something, it's like if you can look inside of a lock, you can much more easily build a key. Um, if you can't see the inside of a lock, you basically create 100,000 keys and just try one at a time. And that was sort of the old school. And her idea, um, to put it another way, was to create a synthetic structure, a model of G-protein coupled receptors on the computer to create these algorithms to figure out if these, the drug, which is the key, would fit into that lock, which is the synthetic structure um, on the computer, and to use that as a way to jumpstart the whole drug discovery process for GPCRs. And we were very successful with a very small company and, and minimal um, investment, less than $100 million. We were able to put four different novel drugs into the clinic. Um, we had a fifth drug, which uh, we sold to Amgen for $20 million. And we had uh, a couple of other drugs, which we sold to GlaxoSmithKline, which are still being tested uh, for schizophrenia and other, and other diseases. But unfortunately, our first two drugs um, for anxiety and depression did not work. And um, the company, unfortunately, was unable to, to continue because nobody wanted to invest. Failed in the sense of did not have efficacy or too toxic or 
No, they were actually all, they all were, um, they were all not toxic. Uh, they, they had minimal side effects. They showed the right biological changes in terms of measuring chemicals in the bloodstream, uh, but they just didn't work on the diseases, on, on depression and anxiety, and uh, a second one on Alzheimer's. And it gets to that earlier discussion we had that all of our models, of course, these drugs worked in, otherwise they would never have gotten into humans. But humans always saw us for a curveball, and in these cases, uh, the humans were smarter than our drugs. And uh, all the biology worked, and, and unfortunately, none of the clinical medicine panned out. Got it. So let's turn to COVID. How did you come to start working on COVID? How did you first realize there might be a link between COVID and cancer that allowed a drug for cancer to work in you know, a viral infection? Yeah, when, when Sharon started the company um, and we started to really read the literature and, and actually one of the beauties of these kinds of compounds, even before they get into the clinic, we gave them out to every academic institution we could find that was interested in working on them, including in, in tests for an, antiviral activity, uh, as well as anti-inflammatory activity, things as far as lupus, nephritis, um, other manifestations of lupus, models of arthritis and uh, models of influenza uh, infection, respiratory syncytial virus, and so on. So we had this huge research effort going on in academic labs across the world, um, other models of neurodegenerative diseases where we, we use those data to help partner our drugs to Biogen Corporation. Uh, so a lot of science was getting done and, and really ex exploded the uh, basic science understanding of this pathway across cancers, many different types of cancer, combinations of cancer therapies in viruses in inflammatory diseases and in neurological diseases. And this was all getting done. Now we, we had a little trouble with the uh, coronaviruses because although we had tested them early, the, the SARS coronavirus one, the one that was responsible for the uh, corona outbreak in, in the uh, year 2000 or 2001 in China, um, we were, we were not able to show that we were killing the virus because it turned out we were killing the cells that they were growing in. And the reason we were killing those cells that they were growing is because they were cancer cells. And we're very good at killing cancer cells. So we couldn't distinguish whether we were killing the virus or the cancer. And, and actually it was Sharon again who had the sort of uh, epiphany on a trip to Philadelphia uh, about six weeks ago now or eight weeks now uh, ago that she said, you know, I, I think we, we should have coronavirus activity because a lot of these proteins that the coronavirus makes actually have to interact with XPO1, our drug target, in order to proliferate, in order for the virus to propagate. And there were some publications that had just hit the literature that said that XPO1 was an essential protein for viral replication. So she sent our scientists back to collaborate and find cell lines that were not cancerous, where we could grow coronavirus. And Dr. Ralph Tripp uh, at the University of Georgia in his, you know, PL3 facility, his biological safety license level three, um, which, is, which is the Ebola virus level kind of thing, um, and the coronavirus level, uh, <clears throat> actually showed for the first time that we had direct inhibitory activity, quite marked actually, um, for coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2 um, replication. And that really got us started. Now, the other part of it, um, sorry for the long-winded answer, is that a lot of the problems in coronavirus infections are the inflammation that the body does. And that's true also in influenza. 
In fact, many people believe that the fundamental problem and in, in, in the reason people die of influenza or corona is because of the over-exuberant, over-stressed inflammation that our bodies uh, carry out. And our drug was known to actually block some of those important pathways for inflammation. This was known for a long time. So does that mean, does that, sorry, does that mean in general that anti-inflammatories are effective against these viruses? And many, well, the thinking is that they are, they are, they are certainly used. Um, there's a big, big study going on with a drug called Actemra, which is an uh, tocilizumab is the generic name. It's, an, it's a drug that blocks the inflammatory protein IL-6 because IL-6 levels are very high in patients with coronavirus. So um, we, we also have other drugs that are being used, uh, TNF-alpha blockers, another inflammatory protein. We have drugs that block those and so on. So this was known. It turns out our drug blocks IL-6, it blocks TNF-alpha, it blocks IL-1. Um, and it also directly blocks the virus. So we had one of the unique situations with our drug that even at low doses, it should actually both block inflammation and block viral propagation. Like let's, I want to stop you here for a second. The ILs, these are interleukins, right? Yes, that's correct. Can you give us a quick uh, explanation of what these uh, proteins are? Yeah, interleukin comes from the idea of uh, sort of intercommunication between the leukins, which are the white blood cells. Leuco means white. So these are proteins that are made by white blood cells, typically by lymphocytes or macrophages, and they sort of speak to each other. They're communication proteins. And the interleukins, um, for the most part, some of them are against inflammation, anti-inflammatory, but some of them are very pro-inflammatory. Um, and many of them also cause severe fevers. And interleukin-6, for example, causes severe fevers. Um, and this is the reason people with COVID-19 get high fevers is because their interleukin-6 levels are high. But it's never just one protein because our immune systems are very complicated. So there's a set of proteins, all of which have slightly different names but are confusing. Interleukin-1 also has uh, pro-inflammatory and high temperature, what's called pyrogenic induction activity. And um, it's important to block these, at least to try to get symptoms down in patients with COVID-19. So you guys have been fast-tracked by NIH. And this is a pretty interesting story in and of itself. Normally, it takes quite a long time to get into clinical trial. But you, I understand that you guys are about to enter clinical trial for low doses expovio. So yeah. how, how has the system changed, and how did you get your drug so far so fast? Yeah, so this, this is a lot of credit to the regulatory bodies, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and I have to say, FDA has been really remarkable in this regard. Um, First of all, it's an approved drug already. So we knew at least in the setting of cancer, it was considered safe enough and effective enough um, to warrant treatment of humans. So that makes it easier. Uh, but, but we generated a, the scientific basis for doing these studies, uh, as I mentioned, largely from Sharon's efforts. Uh, there was a, a number of publications that came out at about the same time uh, saying that XPO1 was an important target for this virus. Uh, as well as the actual data, and we have the anti-inflammatory activity. We put together a clinical protocol. Um, we sent it down to the FDA in this case, the Food and Drug Administration, who regulates all. So what's the clinical protocol? It's actually the instructions on how, how to use the drug and what kinds of patients to use it in. So uh, we, we sent that down to FDA. It, it, 
went to the division of virology, which is appropriate because this is a viral infection, obviously. Um, but given that the division of hematology uh, actually knew about our drug and had approved it, uh, the expertise at the FDA on our specific drug was in the division of hematology. So the FDA did a very nice collaboration inside of itself, uh, work, having the virologists work with the hematologists and helped us to create a much better protocol. I mean, the FDA probably knows more about this virus because they've got every company that's working on it sending in information. Um, then, so the FDA knows more about it than most people. Uh, and, and they were able to apply a lot of their learnings to our protocol and come up with a really professional protocol, which is then, it's, a, it's about a 100-page document um, that is sent to doctors at clinical trial sites. These are typically academic hospitals. And um, the doctors read the protocols and they say, I, I think this is very interesting. I want to use this here. Um, of course, all these doctors are treating patients that have the SARS infection. And uh, within, within about uh, four weeks from the time we had an initial protocol to the time we had our first patient actually dosed with low-dose Expovio, uh, which is a record. I mean, these are typically six to nine-month processes. And this is because people were working on weekends and in some cases even overnight to get these tr protocols reviewed, comments back to us. We, of course, worked you know, almost 24 hours a day for many days in a row to get this stuff done because people were dying and still are. So what's the state of the drug now? So the dr drug is, is currently in a phase two randomized trial. Um, we don't tell the doctors or the patients who's getting placebo and who's getting the active drug. Uh, and they're getting a dose that's about one third the dose of the approved cancer dose. This is a well-tolerated dose. Uh, we know that now we've enrolled about 80 patients Eight zero. We're looking for about 250 patients total to be enrolled before we'll know um, with pretty good certainty either that it helps or, or doesn't help for this infection. So the, the, uh, can you tell us which patients it's being used in? Yeah, it's being used in patients that, are ha that have severe COVID-19, which is defined as people who need to be on supplemental oxygen. They have to be in the hospital. Um, it's Initial use, and we're continuing now, is patients who are not on invasive ventilation, which means people who do not yet have a breathing tube. And unfortunately, we have to do it that way because it's, it's very difficult to know in patients that are already on a breathing tube if, uh, if things have gone on for too long. Uh, and that's just the unfortunate part of medicine is that sometimes there are processes that are irreversible. And we just don't know enough about this disease yet to know if it's truly possible to reverse COVID-19 once someone's on a ventilator. The drug that just got approved, uh, emergency use approval um, or indication is remdesivir, which is a pure antiviral drug. And it's also been used in patients with earlier stage infection than what we're treating. So we're allowing patients to be a bit sicker. Um, remdesivir showed a nice, nice um, although modest benefit, but it's definitely a start and it, it definitely gives people hope. So I think I missed it. What's the timeline for you getting results from this trial? We're hopeful that in the next couple of months we'll have results, so fairly quickly. Got it. Steve, last questions or not? No, Michael, I really uh, enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I can turn my video back on now because my kids were taking an AP test uh, just to, while we were talking, so I had my I was trying to minimize my bandwidth, but it was it was great chatting with you, and uh, really wish you uh, well with your endeavors. Pleasure, really. It was a lot of fun, guys. I really appreciate it.